I don't think I know anyone who, when they have time to think about what's going on in a wider world, I don't think I know anyone who wants to leave the world as it is. Everyone is calling for change. And in our kind of world, change is the only constant in the university world, in the business world, the worlds of education and healthcare and social work, the worlds of the law and the police, even in the military world, in the political world, everything is change. And it's constant change and change, of course, in church as well. But everyone is calling for change might be uh, the change that you would make to that run you made today. Maybe some of you were on the 10 kilometre run or maybe the one and a half kilometre run. Maybe you stormed home like Kelly Holmes. Or maybe you staggered out like poor Paula Radcliffe did. might be a change, more personally, of working hours that you'd like to see so that you have at least some time to enjoy what you earn. Or a change in what you get paid so that you have some money to spend when you have the time. Or a change amongst your family. Gerald Durrell's famous book. I'd love to read it, but I think it would spoil the thought. My family and other animals. A change in your home circumstances. A change just generally in your circumstances. You you may wish for that as well. I, I don't know anyone who would leave it exactly as it is. And I certainly don't know anyone who wouldn't change the wider world either. We are now bombarded with images and sounds of what is going on across the world. I have, uh, presumably like you, favourite programmes and uh, my favourite has just doubled up. You can hear it on a Thursday, you can hear it on a Saturday on Radio 4 from our own correspondent. Half an hour, half a dozen Reflections, reports, what's going on in the world, what's going on under the surface. Things that you don't normally hear in the news, we haven't got time for it. But how it feels, how it smells, how it looks, and how it should change. And how hard it is to make the changes. This weekend we're reminded of it, it's the anniversary of the demolition of the Twin Towers in New York on 9-11. Who wouldn't change a world that produces such events, such ways of doing things. Or think of middle school number one in Beslan. Think the genocide as it's coming to be called in Darfur as we prayed a minute ago for them. Think the coming G8 summit, the wealthiest eight nations of the world are coming to Scotland next July. And Africa is their main agenda. I'm delighted by that. Think of those areas and who wouldn't want things to change? You want to change your world and the key question is how to do it. How to change your world. For Christians, of course, it's absolutely central to what we believe. It's to do with how you become a Christian. You have to change. You have to change and accept God's description of you 
both in the value he places on you and the concern he has for you that you've been going the wrong way for too long, that you've been doing things for yourself. You've got yourself at the centre of your universe and now he wants you to face up to his Jesus Christ and to recognise what he has done on the cross It's not some sentimental story from 2,000 years ago, but a life-changing event for here and for now. And that if you accept that and place your faith and trust in what Christ has done, he will come by God the Holy Spirit and begin to live inside you and work it out. It's an incredible picture of what it means to be a Christian. But it's absolutely central to what it means to go on being a Christian the message of the Bible, the character and the teaching of Jesus Christ, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they all combine to bring about change in human lives and experience. And so we hope, not just for individual change, not just so that our lives get sorted out, not just that we feel right with God, but so that somehow our world could change again. Be more of the kind of world that we know God intended it to be. As we read in the Bible, we hear from the God who longs to reach and touch all people everywhere. But actually, especially in the kind of world that we live in, the so-called developed world of the North and the West, the game is changing around us. We seem to be moving away from what Christian roots and framework we once had. And again, the key question is how to change that world again. And I want to share with you two areas that you might long to think about and some very practical things towards the end that you might like to consider doing. This is not the detail of the passages that we read, but I'm stepping back for a change. I'm just trying to think of what's the reality of what we face and the reality of God's hand upon us, the reality of our calling together to be involved in this world. I want you first to think of what it means to understand the nature of the church and then to think what it means to be involved in practice. Matthew's Gospel gives us Jesus' view of these things, the images that Jesus used, the pictures that he uses to help us understand. So firstly, you have to understand the images of the church that Jesus is dealing with. And they're familiar ones. I've given them away already by the illustrations. In Matthew 5, The very familiar ones for most of us. You are salt. And we know what that picture means. It gives taste. It preserves. Master and Commander is just out on DVD, I gather. And that takes you back to a world where you had to have the salt rubbed into the meat to keep it. And if the salt loses its saltiness, your meat goes off and the maggots come out and uh, you're in real trouble. Salt gives taste. It preserves. It makes thirsty bacon sandwich. Just enjoy it for a minute, won't you? But think two hours later when you're gasping for a drink. It's too much. But it's a familiar image. It's a familiar picture. And Jesus uses it. He says, you are my followers. I intend you to be salt. Actually, you are salt. And secondly, he says, you are light on a hill. The light chasing away the darkness. The light revealing the truth. The light drawing people to Itself. I don't know whether you're like me, but whenever I'm visiting places, driving around, and it's in the dark, and the floodlights are on, you know, I want to stop, I want to go and see the game, I want to see what's happening. You feel drawn to the light, don't you? 
The warmth of the light in a big building perhaps has the same effect. That's the picture that Jesus uses. It's a a familiar picture. And Jesus calls his friends to be both those things. Actually, to be more accurate, he tells you that's what you are, whether you like it or not. You are salt. You are light. He then goes on to tease out what kind of salt? What kind of light? Are you doing the job that you're intended to do? Are you the kind of people Jesus intends you to be? The question is, how effective then will you be? If the salt goes off, and uh, Mr. Glasby here, the chemistry teacher, could tell us how that works and whether you can ever get it back again or not. But if it goes off, it's useless. That's the point. That's the point Jesus makes. He's not bothered about the chemistry of it, uh, particularly. It has a purpose. It has a job. And it must do that. And that's what it's there for. How how absurd if it didn't do it. How absurd to light a lamp and then put a lid on it. That's just crazy, isn't it? That's not the point. The point is that the light should be seen and should draw people to itself with the promise of the light and the warmth. Keep sharp, therefore. Shine out, therefore. In particular, we're told in the the end of verse 16 that uh, God the Father in heaven will get the credit for this kind of living, this salty living, this light-filled living, which Jesus says is revealed by the way that you behave, your good deeds, the way that you behave in society, the way that you treat one another, the way that you treat your friends and your enemies, the way that you approach your work, the way that you spend your money, the way that you use your time, the way that you build and run your business, the way that you run your churches, your good deeds will be seen. And the ideal is that those things are seen and that God the Father gets the glory. The writers of the letters in the New Testament play with that a bit and uh, Peter, for example, talks about living such good lives in the open market, as it were, that people eventually are forced to ask questions. Why are these people like this? Why do they care for people who they don't need to care for? Why do they go beyond their own little circles of friends and family? Why can they keep their heads when all around are losing theirs? You know that little thing that's on the office wall? If you can keep your head while all around are losing theirs, you can't have understood the situation. But they ask the questions and then you're able to point them to the Christ who gives you the strength to be like that to be the salt and to be the light. Those are the very familiar pictures. But as you gathered from chapter 13, there are two others. Many others actually, but two in particular. Jesus is speaking in chapter 13 about the kingdom of God. In other words, about how God comes into the world, how he is involved in it, and how he changes it, and thus how may we be involved with his purposes and his vision for the world. And Matthew 13 gives us two other images of the church which we must understand. And again, my little pictures show you them before I even speak. The first one is the seed. And the mustard seed is the one that Jesus chooses. It is pretty tiny. And he's making the point about the contrast. This tiny seed which you apparently lose in the ground, never to be seen again. And lo and behold, after due time, up comes the plant and the plant grows bigger and it bushes out and and everybody finds shelter there and it's good for people and so on. It's an extraordinary vision. But the emphasis is on how tiny the seed is 
how it doesn't seem to relate anything to what comes at the end and how you have to bury it to trigger its effectiveness. And the same picture comes uh, when we're imagining the bread making. I don't know whether the bread makers have kind of spoiled the fun or added to the fun or whether you get to still work at the ingredients. I don't think you do in the... We haven't got a bread maker in our house. Uh, I think you just throw the ingredients in and throw a switch and enjoy the smell. But it takes away the fun of kneading in the yeast, you know, spreading it out throughout the dough. And again, it's a picture of taking a pinch of something, hiding it, and it eventually affecting every part of what results over time, after time. Two other pictures, if you like, to put alongside salt and light that we saw a moment ago. Now, according to my reckoning, according to my reckoning, that's 3-1. I know you don't do Bible study like that, you don't do Bible study by numbers, but that's three pictures from Jesus of things that get hidden and apparently disappear. And only one of things that gets seen very obviously, at first at least. And I always want to say, as I step back from this, and think about what Jesus is saying here, it's as if he's saying that's where the balance should be. Three times he gives you a picture of what it is to be immersed, involved, hidden in the world. Taking that long view and eventually becoming the light. Maybe that's pushing it too hard, but three of those pictures are about hidden things, scattered things, buried things. One of them is about visible, obvious things. It's as if to say, if you want your light to shine in the darkness, you need to invest as salt and seed and yeast. These are the keys to ensuring that the light keeps shining brightly and attractively. There's another key here, which is that the you that Jesus is speaking about, both in chapter 5 and in chapter 13, is plural. You are in this together. Most of them in the New Testament are together words. My guess is that if you saw this title before and if you thought about how to change your world, you were thinking about your own situation. Yes, I'd like to see things change, just like you were saying early on. But actually it's about, in Jesus' mind, yes, we'd like to see things change. And we can be part of that change. That's the vision. That's the invitation of these images. How how I wish we had that in English. English is now the international language, by and large, but it has some some real weaknesses, one of which is we have so many words for the same kind of things. My wife's an English language teacher and has many funny stories to tell of endless confusions with English words that either sound the same but mean completely different things or are the same but mean completely different things as well. But uh, here, we, we, we need something that tells us whether the U is plural or whether the U is English. The French have it, the Germans do, the Greeks, of course, most others do. Actually, we do have it in Scots. You is just one. Use, (laughs) forgive the accent, is all of us together. Maybe that's how we should rewrite the New Testament. We are beginning to recover this. Again, as I wander around the country, I I listen to people, I I share some of their concerns, I hear what they're saying. And uh, there's somebody who's been helping us a great deal, uh, is Mark Green from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. He's helped us to see these images of salt and light and seed and yeast and how they work out. He's helping us again to see that 
in our churches and across the spectrum of churches. We're called together to reach out to our world. Again, he's helped us especially to realise that where you find yourself from Monday to Saturday is the place where you are called to minister and to witness, whether it's studying, whether it's serving, whether it's administering, whether it's learning or teaching, whatever it is, that's the sphere of your ministry. And Mark is protesting against the idea that uh, ministry is only what goes on when we meet together on Sundays in church. In God's hands, his people are scattered and spread and involved and immersed. And that's where the ministry goes on. So the test of Sunday is whether it equips you for the ministry that's waiting for you tomorrow morning, wherever you end up. I think I've told some of you this before, but one of the things that uh, they changed at St. Thomas's since I left the church on the west side of Edinburgh. A couple of things have happened since I've left. Firstly, they've grown. That's a good sign. Creative absence. They've gone much better since I left. And secondly, every so often they have somebody up for an interview and they say, TTT, tell us what you're going to be doing this time tomorrow. What will you be facing? What are the challenges and how can we pray for you? That's good, isn't it? That's recognising that the ministry is going on off-site, away from the church premises, out and about. And Mark Green's been helping us very much. He has an improbable example as he thinks about what this means. The example is Bond. Yes, James Bond. Now, James Bond apparently strides out into the sunset on his own. James Bond takes on the world alone, single-handedly righting wrongs and dealing with situations, fighting for justice and winning all his battles, eventually. Uh, it wouldn't do if he won them straight away because the film would be too short. Uh, Bond is, uh, in Mark Green's view, an emotional disaster area and a spiritual black hole. You never get any clue whether Bond has any faith or not. But he is at least a goodie. Look at this list of qualities that uh, Mark Green has identified in James Bond. Courageous, persevering, resourceful, decisive, patriotic, strong, agile, multi-skilled, intelligent, witty, cultured and honest. You want this man on your side, by and large, because he's a goodie. But there's something about James Bond that goes beyond that. He is not the individual Lone Ranger that you think. He is, in fact, operating with a whole team behind him and alongside him. Mark Green's point is simply this, that James Bond never goes anywhere but that he is briefed, he is trained, he is resourced, and he is supported. It's a very striking vision, isn't it? James Bond never goes on a mission without knowing what he's supposed to do and what he's not supposed to do. He never goes on a mission without undergoing some extra special training, usually at the hands of some very attractive person. And he never goes on his missions without being resourced. He's been in the gun room or the radio room or something like that, and he's been well equipped for the mission. And he is always supported. They're always there with him. They've always got their people not far away, and they're always in contact with him. The radio is always on, except when he gets the girl right at the end, and he switches it off. It's an improbable example, isn't it? But you see the point. And Mark is dreaming of a day that we as Christians experience that again. 
that we know what we're called to do. We're trained for that. We're resourced for it. And we feel supported in what we do. You have to understand these images of the church and the importance that we're in it together. That's the first thing. But okay, you might say, well, how does it work to get involved with seeking to change your world? So here's the second thing. You have to understand how to be involved. And I have three things to say here before we get into some very practical things. The first is that the involvement needs to be on a basis of relationship. This is how uh, Jeremy, my colleague, and uh, our friends in CARE, another organisation, Concerns for Education, Sexual Health, and so on in our society. They work together by building relationships with people in the parliament, people who serve them, people who brief them, and so on. And we take our place with other Christian groups across the spectrum in that building of relationships. But the point is, we don't just lob grenades in and hope they'll change their minds. We realise we have to build relationships. So my question to you is ever so simple. As you think about changing your world... Do you know who's there that you want to be involved with? Who's there that you might want to ask questions of? And do they know who you are? Well, let me give you an illustration, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, because we'll embarrass one another, but I hope you know who your local councillor is in and around the city and the area. I hope you could say what their name was. I hope you knew what party they were in. I hope you know who your MSP is sitting in one of those lovely new windows in the new Parliament building and meditating on their future. I hope you know that. I hope you know who your Westminster MP is because you'll have to think about whether you want them back again within a few months, it looks to us anyway. Maybe even before the end of this year, almost certainly fairly early on in next year, there'll be Westminster elections. A couple of years back we had European elections. And again, I hope you know who is representing us in Europe. Now, I'm not looking for shows of hands, but perhaps even to ask the question suggests that we ought to do some work between us, one way and another. I have a friend who's a Christian counsellor in Glasgow. For the last three weeks, he's had one visitor to his surgery night each week. The last week, he had none at all and read his book. Now, that's very sad, I think, for our political process. Most local and national politicians genuinely are seeking to do right, even if you disagree with them, and even if you think they're rogues and they're only in it for the money or the prestige. But it's very disheartening if they get no feedback. It's doubly disheartening if the only feedback they get is angry and critical. Like you and me, they need to know if they're on the right lines. They need to know that uh, they've made a good decision or done something helpful. The same counsellor, my friend in Glasgow, has had in two whole years of service there just two letters saying thank you. That's all. It's very hard to live like that. Most ministers say that uh, you know, one bad comment on a Sunday needs at least a dozen good ones to put it right. They go to the heart, these things. They're very difficult. How hard it is to function in a world like that where you get so little comeback I've uh, heard now of churches who get these local politicians in and local 
figures in the community, social workers, police officers, people who are helping in a particular way, health carers, and so on. And they get them in and they give them a meal and they say thank you. Sometimes they make them a wee presentation. What a moving thing. I think some of these folks are speechless. They don't quite believe what's happening. Nobody's ever done that. They're only arguing with them and shouting at them and so on. Do you know? Are you known? And could I dare take it even further and say, what are you known for? I think we as evangelical Christians have to watch it. We've got clear things to say and we want to say them sharply and we want things to change for sure and that's a good debate to have. But I fear sometimes that we are only known for our angry firing off of letters. How much better would it be to build up a climate of trust and relationship, to be involved in the conversations, oh yes, and then to say, but whoa, I think this is really out of order here. This sex education pack I discovered the other day, it's dreadful and you must do something to stop it. This spending on uh, education is going in entirely the wrong direction. You must see what you can do to put it right and there'll be a hearing because there's a relationship and there's some measure of trust. Jeremy tells me that when he stood as a candidate on the south side of Edinburgh in one of the recent elections, he was nominated, proposed and agreed as a candidate by about a dozen people. That's how small it is sometimes. And that's what the opportunity is for us to know and to be known and to be involved. So we could throw that dinner we could make that presentation. We could do that in church's life. We sometimes do. How much more for those who are outside and who work for us? We build a basis of relationship. Secondly, we do put in place a good background of research. That's very important as well. And that involves a great deal of watching and listening and learning. You know as well as I do how difficult it is to take comments from people who don't know the story who haven't found out the facts but are just whizzing in because they've heard something along the way, half the story or a bit of the picture and so on. This is suggesting that there needs to be on our part a willingness to work at understanding the details. And that takes time and that takes energy. And there are two places, if you like, for us to put that energy and that time. On the one hand, it is to immerse ourselves in God's Word. So those of you who did the notes this afternoon, a week ahead, you're ahead of the rest of us. To soak ourselves in what God has to say. Those visions, those images, those pictures of how God set things up and how God intends things to be. How God understands how badly things have gone wrong and how one day he will put them right and how we are called to live in that framework. But also we're called to immerse ourselves and to study and to research our world. And of course, with uh, so much material available to us now, it's very fast to find our way around the university computer or your broadband connection or even read a paper each day to just pick on what's going on, to get a picture, then to question and to ask to do your homework. God's Word and our world, it's what John Stott Uh, The famous Anglican preacher calls double listening. We have two ears. We need to listen in those two directions and then make the connections together. Just as an illustration, we in Edinburgh are a festival city. We keep thinking of new festivals. And uh, all these folks come in and out and it's terrific. 
Sometimes we quite like it, those few moments when we get our city back in September for a little while before the next festival arrives. Christian people want to take that opportunity too to witness in the festivals and we commend them for that. But festivals are very interesting though you can tire of them sometimes because they make you think, who's doing the talking here? Who are people listening to? What are they watching? What plays are they going to? What music are they hearing? What are the words? What are the meanings? Who's shaping our world? And how are they shaping it? How can we get in on the conversation that's out there? The conversation on television, in radio, in music, in the arts. As we read the Bible together in groups, or on our own, or hear it explained each week, we build a vision of how things could be under God with His help. As we work our way through Scripture, we find resources, we find places to look. My predecessor at St. Thomas's, some of you will remember him, Dennis Lennon, he still writes Scripture Union notes, which I'm sure you benefit from. But he's long felt this, and his recent, most recent book is about the wisdom that is in the Bible for the living of our lives. He calls it the wisdom of the heart. And what he's done is he's looked through the Gospels, but then he's looked back into that central part of the Old Testament, as we have it, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, books like that. And he's realized that there God is laying out his vision of how he longs for us to be in our relationships, in our society, in our homes, in our families, within ourselves, in our business world, and so on. And Dennis thinks that uh, that's a real help to us, because then you can begin to ask questions of the kind of world that you're in. Instead of lobbing the grenade in, pointing the finger, you're wrong and Jesus says so. You come in and say, look, the Bible talks about a society that cares for people and you're spending money in another direction here. Is that a wise way to spend money? Is that really going to help us in the long run? Is this where you want to go as a society? and so on. You can see how that works. It's a challenge to us. We may research God's Word. We need to research the Word and we need to bring them together. Build the relationships. Do the research. Finally, and this is a bit of a a fraudulent last B, I'm afraid, it is a battle. And in the end, you can do all the research you like and you can spend all your time researching and never quite get out there and get involved. There are moments where we are called to represent a Christian viewpoint. And again, Jeremy and Gordon do this on our behalf as uh, representatives of Evangelical Alliance. Other people from the Catholic Church, our friends from the Muslim community, they do the same kind of thing, as well as folks from the Church of Scotland. But sometimes there is a battle to be joined. There is a debate to be had. The glory of the new Scottish Parliament is that there are many more ways in for ordinary people like you and me to express our views to ask for things to be considered, to challenge what's going on. We need to use those things, because if you don't use them, you lose them. That's how it works. We have an opportunity and a responsibility. It's not easy to get heard. There are many strong and loud voices. But in a democracy, here for the moment at least, we have opportunities to express our views to shape that policy. Many of our Christian contemporaries across the world don't have such privileges. We ought to respond to them, lest one day we should lose them. Evangelical Alliance and CARE 
will say things for you and work hard at doing that. But I want you to understand it's much, much better if you say them. If you do your homework, if you start to make the relationship, if you come in and say, I, I'm really pleased by this, but I'm really bothered by that, that will go a lot further than people like me. Hey, we're paid to say it anyway. We're in partnership together. The Evangelical Alliance, uh, just show you the logo there, you'll find that and you can use our web pages if we could just have a glimpse of that. Uh, along with many other Christian groups and organizations packed with resources to help you do this, packed with links, packed with connections to others. You need to understand how to be involved. The basis is relationship, the background is research, yes, and then the battle is to represent in a way that honors God a Christian viewpoint. But let me finish by reflecting on what it means to act. And again, this will take us back to Matthew's Gospel for a moment longer. We want to change our world. We want to be involved in this. And here are four ways that we can do it as we act together. First and foremost, and again we've modelled that in this service tonight, we are called to act together by praying together. We act prayerfully. Not for nothing. Very soon after the pictures of salt and light, does Jesus teach the Lord's Prayer as we call it. That prayer that longs for God to be honoured. That prayer that longs for God's ways of doing things to be revealed in the earth. That prayer that asks for God's provision for his people. That prayer that seeks to tackle in prayer those issues of evil and those strongholds before us. We act prayerfully. We act, secondly, together. Use, remember. And uh, what better than together, two or three of you, to go and visit somebody in the local council in their surgery. I've heard of one lady in one part of Glasgow who bakes them a cake every week. Thank you very much for what you're doing. Here's your weekly cake. <laughs> Find out when their birthdays are. Take them a present or something that will surprise them, but will win you a hearing and open things up. But do it together. Pray together. Some of us, uh, it's our bread and butter to do this kind of engagement. Some of us, we're terrified. We, we don't want to make the papers. We don't want to be in the red tops. So let's do it together. Let's stand with one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's help one another. Not miss that opportunity. How often have you felt, oh, I wish we could say something about this and it's gone out of your head. You've gone off and got your lunch. If there was a group of you, then you could go back over that and make sure you don't lose it. Act prayerfully, act together, and act at all these different levels. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus takes his commandment locally, nationally, and internationally as he commands his, his people to go and to, to tell the world about him, to tell those locally, to tell their nations, to make disciples at every level. Prayerfully, together, locally, nationally, internationally. And lastly, I couldn't think of an easy way of expressing this, but you offer something in the place of what you're commenting on or criticizing. That's it. That's the wisdom of Scripture. Here's a better way. In uh, Matthew 12, you might like to turn to it. You might like to look this up later on. Matthew 12, verse 45. It's that very poignant story where Jesus tells the story of uh, 
a man who gets released from an evil spirit. And hallelujah, it's great, he's free at last. And off he goes. But the trap he falls into is he doesn't replace what's been inside with anything else. And Jesus gives a rather stark warning. He says, if there's no replacement going on, if there's no alternative world put in place, you could end up seven times worse than when you started. You know this if you've tried to lose weight. Those habits that kept you larger, if you don't replace them with other sporty habits that get you slimmer, you'll be facing a challenge. You'll know that if you've ever been a a serious smoker and you've tried to get off it. You've got to put something in its place before you can set yourself free at last. These kind of illustrations we're familiar with. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. So when you go, don't just say what you're not happy about, but say your vision of how it could be different. I'll finish with a little story from old Mrs. Thatcher. When she was Prime Minister a very long time ago, she was the Prime Minister for so long, I once heard of a little, uh, little girl who asked her, her mum, Mum, can a man be Prime Minister? But you know that she had a very soft, soft spot for uh, Lord Geoffrey Archer, since rather disgraced, but uh, she had a very soft spot for him, she liked him. And they challenged her on it, said, Mrs. Thatcher, why do you give so much time to Lord Archer and not to everybody else? And she kind of sighed and she said, well, she said, they all bring me problems. But Geoffrey, he brings me solutions. And so he got her ear. There's wisdom in the world. There's wisdom in the word. It's positive wisdom. It's a vision of how things could be. We are called to be salt and we are called to be seed and we are called to be yeast and therefore to be light. May God help you and me, as together we seek to change our world. Let's pray for a moment, shall we?